we pray as we go before you that you would send your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to make us hungry for you, and to always be willing to speak your truth in love, regardless of who we encounter. We ask that you would give us holy boldness as we go forth in the power of your Spirit. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, get into the book of Romans, if you haven't already turned there. This morning, what we want to look at is a very, very familiar passage. I'm sure that uh, probably every one of you, you're familiar with it, and I think most of you have probably memorized it and know it by heart. And we'll be going over familiar territory, but uh, what I'd like to do, we'll spend probably most of our time looking at some of the individual words, the passage has several words in it that uh, you probably are not aware of in the Greek text that in some cases are interesting or rare, often not used elsewhere, a couple of them. And uh, I think it'd be good to kind of explain a little bit of the, the background to enhance your already familiarity with Romans 12, 1 and 2. So, Pretty much what we're going to do, I, there's a lot here. It's a rich passage, and we won't get through both of the verses. Hopefully, we'll get through verse 1, or at least most of it, and then we'll continue wherever we leave off. So, let's jump right in. And uh, obviously, this is written to the believer. The whole book, I've been stressing that the whole book's written to believers. It's very theological so that we can understand the nature of depravity, the nature of salvation, what it means to be a believer. And we've seen throughout so far what Paul is, is basically teaching concerning uh, what we might describe as doctrine or teaching. And we're moving into a new section that I'll introduce here in a moment. In the city of Rome, believers died in the Colosseum. Now, this was under construction when Paul writes the book, so it wasn't completed, but towards the end of the first century, Christians were made sport of and were utilized for entertainment, and many of them lost their lives within this uh, athletic complex, you might call it. So we're talking about believers that face difficult times, even in the time of Paul, Paul died in the Neroan persecution. So they were familiar with uh, suffering and what it means to live for, for God in a difficult situation. So we've looked at the first eight chapters where God provides a means of relationship with himself, provision of his righteousness. We just completed 9 through 11 where... Paul is dealing with, well, what about Israel? I thought they were the people of God, and now you're talking about Jew and Gentile together as the people of God. So he has to vindicate God's righteousness in setting Israel aside, but that's not the end of the story. God has a plan to regather them and to eventually save them as a nation, and that is yet future from a church age. So we're in the last 
major division of the book, we can call it application, where all of the things, and I'll expand upon this when we get into the text, all of the things that Paul has been discussing from chapter 1 through 11, how does that look like? What does it look like in everyday living? How does it look like in the Christian walk? And he introduces that with chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So I divide that the applicational portion into uh, four parts. Kind of gave you an overview of these parts last time. We spent all of our time basically looking at some of the highlights. First of all, what does the Christian walk look like in relationship to God? And in that, that's where we're going to focus this morning. We have the essence and the heart of what it means to be a believer. And there's several aspects that Paul brings out in a short two-verse passage there, two sentences. And then he'll move into what does it look like when uh, you function within a church? And the emphasis, there's two emphases there. We looked at spiritual gifts, or I introduced you to them, but also... Love is the overriding relationship that we have with one another. And then we also looked at chapter 13, overview of it, where the emphasis of that is what does the Christian walk look like in society and relationships within people within society. And then he deals with a special case, Christian liberty, and the whole concept of how do we exercise liberty in the midst of varying levels of maturity within the body of Christ with fellow believers? And that's a fairly long part there from 14 to the middle of chapter 15 there. So that's kind of virtually all of the book of Romans. I put the introduction there, chapter 1, and then beginning in chapter 15, verse 14, you have a conclusion. So there's all of Romans on one slide that we looked at last time. Same outline, except now in outline form. Instead of chart form, we have the introduction, we have the provision of God's righteousness, vindication of God's righteousness, and now we're looking at the application, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, and how these principles apply in our relationship to God, verses 1 and 2. So when you memorize passages, sometimes you you miss where they fit. In other words, how do they relate to everything else? So hopefully we'll cement that in your thinking and see that chapter 12 is really the beginning of a new division and a new emphasis in terms of the overall flow of the book of Romans. So verse 1, one sentence, the concept of the Christian life is centered in presenting oneself to God, in other words, making oneself available, giving ourselves over to Him. There's lots of ways you can describe it. Committing to Him. Now, this is not for salvation. He's talked about all of that, but he's assuming that the reader is a believer. So how do we deal with that in terms of the Christian walk? So everything starts with God. So the application obviously starts with that relationship. And he's going to plead with the believers, and we'll look at the key word in that passage there. So let's look at the pleading, and it begins with therefore. 
And uh, whenever you have a therefore, you have to ask the question, why is it there? And uh, what is its relationship? Obviously, it's tying it to what is said before. Verse 1, and scholars take different views, but I think it relates to everything that Paul has spoken of already. So this is kind of a therefore that ties everything back together. And based on everything that he's talked about, now he's going to urge the brethren. Notice he stresses that he's addressing believers. So let's take a look at this therefore. And I I think chapters 1 through 11, because of them and what's contained there, therefore now Christian needs to reflect the reality of 1 through 11 in uh, everyday living, and that's chapter 12 through the middle of chapter 15. And we could summarize this in a lot of ways. In other words, chapters 1 through 11 stress what some would describe as theology. And we, we talked about last time a drastic change in even the grammar. You can, you can see immediately that the grammar itself changes. And the abbreviation there in parentheses abbreviates the indicative mood. In other words, statements of fact, statements of reality. And what Paul is laying out, this, these are the truths that are the foundation to how, to how we live. So the stress, chapters 1 through 11, which would include the portion dealing with the nation of Israel, is primarily theological, you might say. And the indicative mood is the stress. Now, beginning in chapter 12 through the end, the, we could describe it as how do these principles apply or how does this theology work itself out in everyday living? So we could call that application. And grammatically, now there's a shift to predominantly the imperative mood in the Greek text. The imperative mood is the mood of commands or exhortations. And you can see this vividly in the Greek text, change from the indicative to the imperative mood. So what do we do now in light of who we are, in light of what God has revealed concerning not only our nature, but what he has done primarily? How do we respond to that? We could call that application. So that's kind of the title that I've given to the whole section. So Chapters 1 through 11, another way of describing it, this is reality. This is what God says. This is what God has revealed concerning what he has done, concerning the reality of who we are and who we are after we have trusted in him, the reality of God working within us after we, we trust in him. And then you could view chapters 12 through 15 as now, how do we respond? What is our responsibility in uh, light of the reality that God has revealed to us? And if you want kind of alliteration, you could call it doctrine, chapters 1 through 11, that uh, requires certain duty, another word for responsibility. So doctrine and duty, chapters 12 through 15. Or if you want P's, principles, these are the principles that we need to know, the principles that lead to practice. So 
How do these principles work themselves out? We might say divine revelation, chapters 1 through 11. This is God's perspective on reality, on what he wants us to understand. And then again, the human responsibility, kind of going along with the second item I've got there. So we could see chapters 1 through 11 as foundational. Now, some stress that you have theology and then you have the practical. I don't like to use that word, even though I've got practice there, because theology, bottom line, is is practical. Now, certainly it is it is teaching, but it is it is reality and it it is practical. Now, sometimes we tend to make it academic, and maybe I'm guilty of that as well. But uh, theology should not be academic, and it should not just be what some might describe as theoretical. Theology in itself is very, very practical, and the practicality of it is that it is foundational. In other words, these are the foundational truths that we need to, to believe, and, and now we can act on that reality. We are always living in what we think is reality. And oftentimes we don't have a biblical foundation. We don't have a biblical perspective, a biblical view. Well, Romans 1 through 11 gives us that biblical foundation that we may draw, and we'll see in this passage, even renewing our thinking so that now our life is built on that foundation. And what we're going to see Another way of stating the same thing, we're going to see what the Christian life looks like lived out in everyday situations. So we might say from our understanding of reality, from our understanding of what God has revealed in terms of principles, doctrine, theology, whatever his revelation is, chapters 1 through 11, now it needs to be reflected in how we live. So we're going to emphasize the human responsibility, the, the living out of the principles that uh, we've been studying for four years now. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a introduction to therefore. Very important word. You didn't realize that the therefore had all of these aspects to it, did you? Well, now you know. So when you memorize or repeat the memorization and you start out with therefore, now you can think about the therefore and meditate on all that you have there. And based on all of that revelation, based on that reality, based on those principles, Paul now personalizing, I urge you and he identifies them as believers. So these things, the unbeliever cannot live out because he does not have the reality of what Paul has described in chapters 1 through 11. So he's urging the believers. And I've got a slide that I'm going to start a series of words here to help us to understand some of these words, to deepen that understanding, to better appreciate, and to better be more motivated to actually carry out what Paul is, in this case, urging. Now, as an apostle, Paul could have commanded or insisted 
or put us under the law, if you will. But because of grace and because of the reality of the things he's already communicated, he simply urges us and reminds us, we'll see in the next phrase, reminds us what should motivate us. Not the commandment of an apostle, not the legalism, but the nature and character of God and particularly his mercy. So let's take a look at this word to urge. Now, New American Standard translates it in this context as urge. It's a familiar word. You're familiar with this word, parakaleo. How many of you are familiar with this word? Who wants to kind of tell us about the noun form of parakaleo? Oftentimes, paraclete. Paraclete, very good. And what is the paraclete? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So the word is used to describe a function or an attribute or a work, you might say, of the Holy Spirit. And in those contexts, he's he's described as the comforter or the one that comes alongside of. So the, the word I urge is this idea of coming alongside of or encouraging us, one another, and Paul himself, coming alongside. I'm urging you. In other words, I'm joining in in this spiritual warfare. I'm joining in in this walk in the world. I'm joining in with you, alongside of you, and I'm urging you, join me. You might even paraphrase it. So it's a it's kind of an emotional word. It's a comforting word a word that conveys relationship, and it's translated as urge more often than not, 23 times. I've got the numbers there, which are not that important, but just to give you a sense, and it's sometimes translated comfort very often as well, 18 times, or I implore you. So it's not a wish, and it's not a command, but it's kind of something in between, imploring or exhort. And it has the the idea of uh, encouraging as well. In fact, later on, we're going to see that uh, the same word is used in a, in a context of spiritual gifts. And the essence of that gift is the ability to encourage and comfort, encourage, motivate, urge. So that's the introductory verb here. Paul urging us along, not so much commanding us. And it's on the basis or through the dia there by by the mercies of God, through the mercies of God, through what God has done. In other words, based on God's work, not based on uh, duty, not based on our efforts, but based on what God has done. And I'm going to go through this next one very rapidly. You may not get it all down, and if you want it, I'll give it to you later. But just a quick reminder, if you remember, in fact, would somebody read the the last couple of verses before we get into uh, chapter 12 in chapter 11? Would somebody read for us before we get into these 31 and 32? Even so, these also have now been disobedient 
that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Now, who's he For talking? God, who's he talking about here? He's saying they or these. Um, he says you also were disobedient to God, and that type of thing before that. Yep. Um, so those who are not believers. And who is he focusing in on? Who are these who are disobedient? The main topic of nine through eleven. The Jews. The Jewish contingent in the first century. Now read verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Okay. So this is how he concludes before he goes into the great doxology that we looked at, the great little passage on worship. Notice the word. How many times do you see it there in those two verses? In fact, if you go back to verse 30, it's contained there as well but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. The you, who is, who is the you in verse 30? Gentiles. The Gentiles. There you go. Gentiles have shown mercy during the church age. Remember we expanded in that and saw how he's distinguishing between the age in which God is working now in contrast to what he will do in the future and talking about the mercies that he's going to be able to show to the, the Jews and both Jew and Gentile have a history of disobedience, and God bestows mercy. And the Jew in this age is out of fellowship, you might say, or apart from God, but he will show them mercy in the future. And because all are depraved, all are sinners, all are in disobedience, God is free to exercise his mercy to the nation of Israel in the future. So it's based on that, but I think it goes even further all the way to everything that he's been talking about because of the context. Because of the context, it could include a whole list of negatives, the mercies of God. We've been rescued from wrath. We don't face the wrath all the way back to the beginning of what we might describe as the doctrinal portion of the book the wrath, the judgment in 2.5, the judgment of God. And he's going to expand that. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgments of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. That's where we were before the mercies of God touched us. So we were facing God's judgment, and it, in, it would involve tribulation, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So we have tribulation, distress. We've been rescued because of the mercies of God. We're in danger of perishing until we trust, 2.12. Condemnation, 3.8. We're under sin, 3.9. We're facing destruction, 3.16. And misery, 3.16. We've been rescued from all of that. That's the mercies of God. But there's also the positive aspect. We're now called beloved in verse 7, based on the mercies of God. We're called saints in the same verse. We've received grace in that same verse and peace. And then after justification, chapter 5, verse 1, 
based on justification by faith. We have peace with God. We've been justified, 3.24. We've received forgiveness, 4.7. That's part of justification. We've received sanctification, 6.19. These are all based on the mercies of God. And I think this is what he's kind of bringing together a lot of what he's already spoken of in chapters 1 through 11. And the list goes on. We've been given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, 8.11. And even our future is ensured with the aorist tense of being glorified. Even though we have not experienced it, it's placed as if it has already taken place in 8.30. And we could triple the list on the right-hand side in terms of what God has done in bestowing mercy to us. And you could think of some other things. Can you think of some other things that are not on the list that are described in terms of what God has given to us besides calling us and bringing us into a new relationship of being loved or beloved and saints and that's separated from the world and grace and peace, etc.? Any other suggestions? Children. We're children. We're described as children, sons even. Wow. Anything else? Ambassadors of reconciliation. Reconciliation. I'm not sure he uses the word ambassadors, but uh, that's true from other passages. But reconciliation is in uh, one of the passages. What else? We have eternal life. Eternal life. Anything else? Any suggestions? How about security? Remember, he ends chapter 8 in security. Freedom. Gifts. Gifts. We've been gifted. Resurrection. Jesus praying Hope. for us. Hope. Yeah, the list goes on, and we could uh, add to the list, but the font would be too small for you to be able to see it. So he's urging also, us. Also, Go ahead. Also, the, our tests in life. Work together for good. Even our tribulations. Exactly. Exactly. So based on those mercies, he's urging us. In other words, the motivation is not law. The motivation is not legalism. And that's true throughout these chapters. The motivation is based on what God has done. The natural response is us presenting ourselves or the text says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So the motivation is on the basis of the grace and the mercy that God has bestowed upon us. And uh, even beginning with this word, the word to present, and I'll give you that Greek word in a moment, but let me kind of give you some background here. Remember, there's a Jewish contingent, there's a Jewish audience of believers at the Church of Rome, and I think he's somewhat emphasizing what he's saying here, and not only the Jews, but uh, the Gentiles would be familiar with Jewish practice as well, and the whole sacrificial system, particularly uh, the believers, because they would be familiar with the Old Testament. So I think kind of the... the uh, the imagery, if you will, that Paul is drawing from, and we're going to see this as we work through the passage, is the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The word to present 
is a word that the the individual in the Old Testament would present an animal. They would bring it, present it to the priest. The priest would present it to God on an altar, and it would be, as the text says, a holy sacrifice, one that was set apart. So the idea of presenting, the idea of a sacrifice, the idea of pleasing God, the idea of even the word service is kind of a word in a sacrificial context. We'll see that in a minute. Actually, service of worship represents one Greek word there. So the idea of presenting oneself and the context is within the temple. And just for imagery, when you uh, repeat your memorization of this passage, you might have this visual picture of where the Old Testament sacrifices took place, the focus of Israel. This is the first century model. And those of you that went on the Israel trip will remember the model here. And in front of the temple itself, the structure, the building, would be an altar where sacrifices would be offered. That's where the arrow is pointing. So this would be the imagery. The Jews would think in terms when you mention the word presenting, in this case, not an animal, but uh, your bodies. And when language concerning a sacrifice would be used and this service of worship, this would be the imagery that would come before the thinking of not only the, the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And they would be reminded of the sacrificing of an animal as gruesome and as ugly as uh, we would think of it in our culture, bloody, uh, noisy, smelly. The death of an animal set aside, offered on an altar, and consumed, offered up to God. So that's some of the kind of the background underlying imagery of this whole passage that begins with the word presenting. So let's take a look at this word to present, parastemi, the Greek word there. And I can summarize it as to put at someone's disposal. And in the case of an animal in the Old Testament, it was put at the disposal of the priest to be disposed of and offered up to God. But in this context, referring to the believer, we put our bodies like on an altar, but you can't put your body there without putting your whole person. And I think it goes beyond that in that it's not just your body, even though some commentators focus more on simply the body. But you're going to find out as we go through the passage that the whole person is involved, the renewing of our minds, referring later on to our wills as well. So this is a an act of the will as well. So you can't present your body and separate it from the rest of who we are. So you're putting your entire self to be made available to God. And at the heart of the presentation is this is a sacrifice. And I've kind of separated this out because in the Greek text, I think this is the focus. And then we have uh, some words that kind of modify the idea of a sacrifice. And obviously, this is sacrificial language so the typical word that is used for sacrifice 
that word will be modified by living and holy and acceptable to God. So there's three three words that follow, and then the third one is a phrase that that uh, is modified by acceptable to God, the last part there, the prepositional phrase. But at the heart of it, in other words, this presentation is a sacrifice. It is the best of the flock. It is uh, the most important aspect of what you own in the Old Testament context. And brought into the New Testament, it involves not an animal, but our very being itself. So the word sacrifice is the typical Greek word, thusia, from uh, Old Testament imagery, that that is offered to God, released and given over to the priest to be offered on an altar. So we have the language of the Old Testament continuing here, not only in the offering or presentation, but in the word sacrifice itself. And it's a living sacrifice. It's not a slain animal. It's it's a living sacrifice. And the idea is it's an ongoing sacrifice. In other words, this is not a once for all presentation, but it's a sacrifice that continues. It's one where we, well, we die in the sense of dying to sin and dying to self, but we continue to live in newness of life. And that whole life, everything before us is presented to him. So it looks at every aspect of living. So it's a living sacrifice. Living, which would include everything. In other words, our our homes, our possessions, our relationships, our careers, our aspirations, our motivations, everything is presented. This is at the heart of what it looks like to be a believer is this ongoing present tense idea of living, basically living for God. In fact, that's what I've uh, kind of titled the whole outline sheet there, committed to living for God. So it's a, a living sacrifice. Can you think of other areas that we present when we, in fact, follow Paul's urging here? He was thinking the sacrifice that we're in now is not the physical blood like the animal, but it's a sacrifice in Christ's blood, not ours. Yep. It's on the basis of what has been done on our behalf based on his shed blood. Very good. Good. Someone said that they would cut the animal and it would start to like run and die there and pump out all of its blood. And that was essential to those Old Testament sacrifices. Right, because the life is in the blood, exactly, just like that uh, image like that I showed earlier. Say that again, Norman? Our life Jesus' blood. Right, based on the shed blood of Christ. That's why it's a living sacrifice. And it's also described as holy. Now, unfortunately, uh, also, Jim? Before you leave the living part, I, also, wouldn't it include... Uh, the concept then of bringing every thought captive, uh, actually to be conscious of what we are actually thinking. I think so. Yeah, I think it's our total being. It's it's not just our bodies, not just the physical body. You can't separate the physical body from who we are. In what fact, about opinions? 
Say that again. Sacrifice our opinions. Our opinions, yes. Yes, exactly. Because our... Great. Go ahead. I made a list. Uh, I have standards, desires, motives, values, and practices. Very good. Good list. Great. Super. Anyone else before we go to holy? Probably pride. Say it again. Pride. Pride. Absolutely. Yeah, laying, you're laying yourself down is putting your pride down. Exactly. And I think living means, as you insinuated before, that it's daily. Yep. It's a Sometimes momently. Momently, exactly. I think what he's also summarizing here is what he said in chapter 6, if you remember in uh, chapter 6. In fact, uh, it'd be good for somebody to read verse 4, because I think he's summarizing a lot of the things that he developed in the principles of sanctification. And when we were in those passages, we talked about sanctification is nothing more than living out the Christian life. We have the principles there, and now we have the exhortation here to do it. Who wants to read uh, 6-4? You got it, Connie? Yep, we were, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I think he's summarizing here, walking in newness of life is this moment by moment presenting ourselves alive. But now we are presenting ourselves in newness, resurrection is what he's talking about there. And there's other things in the passage that he develops in chapter 6 that I think elaborate that. So I'll leave that for, for you to, to study on your own. Now, the word holy, I think in a lot of ways we've kind of distorted the heart of what the, the word means. Uh, who wants to kind of expound the essence of what holiness means and primarily from the Old Testament, but carries the same idea in the New Testament as well. When we think of holiness, we, we think of morality or we, we think of purity. Now, that is kind of a, that is an aspect of it, but I think that's secondary. What is the heart? Set Say it again. Set apartness. Set apartness. Very good. That is the essence of holiness. And if you remember, there's lots of things in the Old Testament that are holy. Set apart for purpose. Yeah, set apart for a purpose. And I think that's at the heart here. Uh, we are presenting ourselves, making ourselves available. We're setting ourselves apart. And in this case, it's a sacrifice that is set apart. And it wasn't that that the animal that was presented had inherent holiness, you might say, or purity. Now, it was to be without blemish, but it was set apart. In other words, I'm no longer clinging to this animal that I'm going to utilize in my life, but I am setting it apart to God and giving it over to him. And we have hundreds of illustrations in the Old Testament of this idea of setting apart inanimate things, things that in themselves are no different. You, you, we've used the illustration of uh, dishes that were set apart in our culture. You can set them apart. And that doesn't mean that in some way they're inherently better than another 
pot or, or dish, but it's set apart for a particular purpose and use. I think that's the essence of what we have here being set apart. Now, we are in the process of also being conformed more and more to, to that moral aspect, but the setting apart idea is, I think, uh, prominent here. So the living is living in newness of life, not deadness. In fact, we have died, is what that Romans 6 passage looked at. And holy, we are separating. And he's going to emphasize that in the second verse that we won't get to today. So it's an acceptable, it's also an acceptable sacrifice to God. This is what makes it acceptable is not only the presentation, but everything that goes with it, the mental attitudes, the pride is the long list that we came up with, and the living aspect and the holy sacrifice aspect naturally leads to this is what is pleasing to God. This is what is acceptable. And if you read Malachi, Malachi reprimands the Jewish people at that time, the end of the Old Testament period, because they were bringing sacrifices that were not acceptable. They wouldn't present those sacrifices to the governor, and yet they're bringing the same non-holy or non-blemished sacrifices and offering them up to God. So these are sacrifices acceptable. So it's a living, holy, and you might say acceptable sacrifice to God. I have a question. Go ahead. Um, in the Old Testament, they'd always they'd want to sacrifice the, the animal without blemish. Now, obviously, the animal wasn't perfect, but did the without blemish just symbolize the, the future sacrifice of Christ? I, yeah, I, I think uh, there may be, be some elements of that in there. Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, but I think... Primarily, it was, you know, you give the best. In other words, uh, you've got a sickly lamb. Our humanness, our tendency is, well, let me sacrifice it because I'd rather do it than try to relinquish my ownership of the best. So the one that represents the best, the one without blemish, is the one that God is the one that this calling us to. Because everything belongs to him anyway, even in the Old Testament context. So we're just giving him the best, giving it back to him in uh, understanding that he's the ultimate owner anyway. So we give it back to him. So there's a third part, Jim. So, uh, yeah, doesn't that kind of go back to Cain? Yeah. And the problem that he had, maybe? It probably does, yeah. Yeah, that he didn't present his best. Probably, yeah. I think there are at least that aspect in in the story, but it may also be an inappropriate sacrifice as well. Now, that's not as clear in the biblical text, but certainly in the biblical text, what you're saying, I think that's the main emphasis of what we have in uh, Genesis chapter 4. So Paul pleads, rather than commands, pleads the believer, urges them based on what God has done, the motivation of God's grace. And then he encourages, it's an infinitive, by the way, an infinitive of result, I think. 
the presenting, although it's not in the imperative, the presenting, it's at the heart here, presenting oneself to God. And that is actually personal worship. And that's how he concludes the verse, which is your spiritual. We have to take a look at that word. That's the way the New American Standard translates the, the, the Greek word there. And I think it has an element of this idea. It's It does have a spiritual aspect to it, but there's, there's more to that word. The word spiritual, and I've got it with quotation marks. That's the way New American Standard translates it. It's actually the Greek word logikos. What does that remind you of? King and logic. Logic or logos even. Thoughts or words, logikos. So I think it has, as a major thrust of it, this idea of something relating to reasoning or rationality or logic or reasonable. I think uh, all of those elements are part. So it's it's not a, a physical worship or a visible. It's invisible. And I think you can use the idea of spiritual as well. So keep that in the back of your thinking. That doesn't come across in some of the translations. Now, some of them might translate reasonable sacrifice or service, rather. New American Standard uses the word spiritual, but it has more than just non-material. It has thought behind it, logic behind it, reasonableness. In other words, this is the right response, the right way of responding, and that right way of responding, that reasonable way of responding, is actually worship. Go ahead. Denise, first. Hi, Ray. Um, The thing that comes to mind when I read this is that Paul is reminding the believers, it's not through them, it's because of the relationship they have, because of the shed blood of Jesus, which is the true holy sacrifice that they are acceptable to god and it's just an attitude of gratitude yes an attitude of gratitude very good that's something of what norman was referring earlier exactly norman you had a comment just that it was it's reasonable like a transaction he died for us we should lay down our lives for him yep in other words it's a normal reasonable wise thing to do, and it's actually what God desires, and therefore it's service of worship. Now, in the Greek text, there's only one word there, and the New American Standard is trying to capture both ideas, the idea of service and worship, and both are contained in that one one word, and uh, latreia, is that how you pronounce it, Nate? Service. That's actually another Old Testament sacrificial word. This is the, the, the service of a priest, which in a worship context, the, the ministry that a priest or the Levites would perform in ancient times in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, latreia, So it could be translated service, it could be translated worship. New American Standard combines the two, service of worship. So that's the idea there. In other words, what the priest does 
during the time of sacrifice and worship, and everything associated with it was this idea of service. So that's the word, and it's a word that has this sacrificial connotation from the Old Testament. So we are like, in fact, we are uh, priests unto God, each of us individually. And in Israel, only certain ones, only the descendants of Aaron, only the Levites, only the ones that were related to that tribe were priests. Only they offered the sacrifice. This is the way that God set it up. But in the New Testament, everyone is on an equal basis in Christ. And we are like, well, more than like, we are priests unto God. In fact, the book of Revelation describes us as a kingdom of priests. And we can offer spiritual sacrifices. In fact, the one sacrifice that leads to many others is presenting our bodies or our entire selves. And that's an act of worship. So we can worship God moment by moment. We don't have to be in a special place. In fact, what does Jesus say? There will be a time when people won't worship in the temple, but uh, they will offer worship in spirit and in truth. And what he's introducing there is this concept of you don't have to be in a special place. You don't have to do certain things. Uh, You can worship moment by moment everywhere. In fact, that's what's encouraged. So this moment by moment submission, or some like to use the word yielding, is the essence of what we have in this verse, the essence of how we respond or how what it looks like to be a Christian is somebody that is submitted to God moment by moment. That's kind of a summary of the whole verse. Any other comments? I'm going to just kind of give you a brief introduction to verse 2, and then we'll spend our time on it and may even go beyond verse 2 next time. Does the real word have a connotation of cleansing the people or uh, purifying the people or something like that? Which one? The uh, the, the, the worship word? Service word, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we, I think we serve as intermediate mediators between God and others, uh, not being above them, but we can minister to fellow believers in prayer, in ministry, in the exercise of gifts, but we also uh, can stand as missionaries to a lost world and bring the gospel message to those that don't know Him. And in that way, we, we serve as priests as well. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, um, this is Marty. Um, I keep seeing how all of this is possible because of our oneness with Christ, which is humbling to me that instead of me thinking I have a job, as you pointed out earlier, but it's very humble position for us to live out the life of Christ because we're one with him. So all of this keeps magnifying him to me 
he gets bigger and bigger with all the things that he's given us to do. And then he lives it out in us. It's rather exciting and freeing that right. I don't have to worry about doing it right. Jesus Correct. does it. Yep. All we do is just lay down on the altar and let him work. Exactly. Very good. So verse two is how does this work itself out? And I think he's given, I try to summarize verse two by the process of the pre presenting. So he encourages us to present ourselves. And now he's going to give more detail concerning the process of how it actually works out. And there's a positive and there's a negative. He starts with the negative and not being conformed to the pressures of the age. The word world, we'll look at it. New American Standard translates it, uh, do not be conformed to this world. The word, the word world there is actually the word for age. We'll look at it next time. And then the positive is be transformed. And both of those are in the present tense, present imperative. So both of those are ongoing processes, the moment by moment idea. And we'll look at, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, submitting to God moment by moment, I think that's the big idea of everything we've been talking about today. Well, before we have a time of prayer, and we're getting close to the end here, Steve, did you have, are your friends with us today? I didn't notice them. You were going to introduce them? Who? No, the Jeff and Phyllis Gare yeah, part? No. Yeah, they're not with us today. Okay, we'll save that. No. Uh, maybe what we can do is, Angie, why don't you tell, uh, reacquaint the group? One thing we've been doing towards the end is asking people since we've kind of are meeting with new people and people all over different places. We've had people introduce themselves. Can you just real quick remind people of who you are and introduce yourself anew to the new people? Yes. My name's Angie Burden. My husband is Rand. And I recognize a lot of you. Um, we moved to Durango, Colorado two years ago after Rand retired and we love it up here. We've decided to retire here because we've just spent a lot of time up here. So it's wonderful. And our son and his wife are up here too. And uh, so we, we had attended Grace for a number of years. I don't recall what, what years that was. My mind is gone with this COVID thing. Can't keep up with time. But we're doing well. And I had asked prayer just a few minutes ago for our daughter, Rachel. Um, she's expecting a baby in May and just pray for a healthy baby that um, it's a girl. She pray that she's growing normally and that Rachel would not have any complications in her pregnancy. And um, that's about it. So hi, everybody who I, who I know. <laughs> I, okay. Who'd like to close for us today? Anyone want to volunteer? Well, Father, we give you thanks uh, for this message today, especially in light of the privilege it is to live the Christian way of life uh, in, in view of the mercy that uh, we all need uh, to uh, 
to live this life. So we thank you for your mercy and your grace, especially today, uh, knowing that it is only by that mercy and grace that we have the opportunity to live this life. And it is not a matter of legalism and frustration. Uh, and we thank you for the love that you extend toward us. And may that love of the Spirit uh, be expressed among us to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I hope you all have a good week. Any final goodbyes as we... Happy New Year. Yes. Happy New Year, and thank you. Good way to start the new year, submitting to God moment by moment. Amen. Happy New Year. God bless you all. Have a great week. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Congratulations, Mike and Katie. We'll be praying. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Mike and Katie have a full basketball team, so they're hoping for a cheerleader, I think. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be another boy. <laughs> oh, you it's already know. Substi- substitute, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All righty. Well, have a good week, everybody. <laughs>